You're listening to the Physics Ed Podcast. For hundreds of ideas, free experiments and more, go to physicseducation.com.au. And now, here's your host, Ben Newsom. Yes, welcome again for another Physics Ed Podcast. Glad to have you here. And this week we're hanging out with Gillian Hewitt, who's an amazingly talented artist and biologist. She really helps kids understand how to really depict the world they see around them. She is the founder of Imagine Naturalist, which is all about encouraging children to utilize their powers of observation and give them the skills to express their thought through fun and creative means. Really, really cool. And trust me, you should see the work that she creates. My gosh, you can draw. (laughs) It's really, really cool. But it's not just about drawing. It's about really looking at the fine detail of all sorts of biological specimens and anything around you and really picking up the detail and understanding how it works with biotic and abiotic factors. Very, very cool for teaching science and highly creative. So uh, let's dive right into it. This is the Physics Ed Podcast. We're all about science, ed tech and more. To see 100 fun free experiments you can do with your class, Go to physicseducation.com.au. That's physics spelled F-I-Z-Z-I-C-S. And click 100 free experiments. Okay, so um, I have a company which I call Imagine Naturalists. And it's really um, a combination of that word. It's a bit of a mouthful at first, but it does grow on you. It's a combination of the word imagination and becoming a naturalist. And it goes, it's an education program. And I go into schools and I teach scientific concepts, but I do it through art activities to engage the children. Children really love doing art. And when we do it in the way that I present it in these programs, they're learning all about science concepts without actually realizing that they're getting passionate about the world around them. Yeah, and and by the way, uh, if the Imagineers from Disney can say that, you're allowed to say Imagine Naturalists. Well, I did think it might be too much for my fault, but um, I ran it by a few of my first kids and they all loved it. So that's what that's what stuck. Well, actually, it really sets the tone of what you're doing. I mean, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm aware of some of the projects that you get up to and they very much are truly about imagination. But I mean, when you when you say art, we're not being flippant here. This is re- like really detailed quality stuff that you're getting up to. I mean, maybe um, just before we get into all that, what made you want to start this sort of thing? Um. Okay, so I have a background in science and I used to work in um, marine biology and I worked around and about in a few places, including Antarctica. And when I um, came back from there and completed some of my research, I found that people were often asking me, um, could I draw them something that they wanted to convey in their science research? something that they couldn't really communicate with photography or they wanted just to put an emphasis on something that they were doing in their research. And so they would ask me to draw it. And I realized there was a real need for art as a language in science. And it's basically the way that we all mostly understand complex concepts is through the illustrations and the visual impacts. So Once I moved over here to, well, I was originally from New South Wales, but once I came back to New South Wales, I discovered that they had a natural history illustration degree at the University of Newcastle. So I decided to jump back in and do a second degree on top because it was really a fusion of my two passions. And um, I, I absolutely loved it. 
I did very well. I actually got the faculty medal with that one down at Newcastle Uni. And after I completed that, I was looking for something that was going to give me a job that could keep me passionate about that. And I really didn't see anything that existed. And I have young children and my kids benefit a lot from my ability to point things out to them and I wondered I wonder if other kids would also benefit from this so I decided to create a education program where I could fuse art and science and I took it to a few schools and it's been immensely successful and um, we've expanded from there so I go in face to face um, do I have a wide variety of programs that I do in different schools with all different topics and mostly I am going into primary schools but it's a really great age to get them really passionate about um, going forward into the world and noticing what's around them and if they are given those skills through art to communicate those things they have a really good foundation to take that further down the scientific inquiry road. Oh, absolutely. And then by the way, you probably picked up, we really do have a storm coming over the top of us, which uh, it makes me uh, in this box, this padded room where as I, as I chat to you, makes me imagine what on earth is going on above my head. Uh, but um, the kids are really, I mean, I, I mean, okay, they naturally love to draw. It's one of the very first things that kids do when they're very, very young. But I feel like it, it sort of starts to drop off a little bit as we get older and older and older. And especially when uh, we start being conscious of what others think. But then again, if you're trying to convey a message, especially an idea, especially onto paper, in some way, shape or form, you have to put it down and sort of back yourself. How, how do you find working with kids we, who may be reticent to go down an art path, even though they're very creative when you speak to them? I'm just sort of wondering, what were the sort of first steps to be able to get a kid to really take, you know, harness what you, what you get into? Well, um, you're exactly right with how they lose that confidence as they go, um, as they get older. And if you grab them at that high school age, there's so many instances where they, they shake their heads and say, I can't do that when I show them what activity we're going to do. But you lead them into it with very foundational basic skills and take them up step by step. And when you... It's like anything, when you learn the tips and the tricks of the trade, um, there's little shortcuts, there's little tools to be used, et cetera, and they use those and then suddenly they, their back straightens and they put their shoulders back and they look at what they've done and they are just so amazed that they can create something that is really, really amazing. Well, what I would say, one of the things that's really, really amazing is that, I mean, first start, you, your illustrations, frank, frankly, are just top-notch. They're really... <laughs> really really good really oh, thank you, going to you so they're amazing and, uh, and somewhat daunting um but uh at the same point what i love is that you really let them go into fanciful imagination especially with the mars plants thing could you tell us a little bit about that particular thing okay so most of the um programs that i design i i, I specifically put an educational content in and they learn a bit about for instance the adaptations of plants in our world and Plants grow in every environment all over the world in many, many different ways and shapes and forms. And they do that to overcome the um, environments that they live in and be successful in those environments. So when we designed the, when I designed the Plants on Mars program, it was specifically, we discussed the difference between the um, atmospheric conditions, the lack of light, the temperature, those kinds of things in comparison to Earth. 
And we had a look at some comparable plants that, you know, might live in extreme environments on earth and how do they get around those extreme conditions. And as well as that, um, we then talked about how would you do it on Mars if you were a plant and if you had to adapt to live, what kind of changes, although they do understand that these changes are incremental over millions of years, but what kinds of um, features or adaptations would the plants have to have to be able to survive on Mars and what would they even look like? So when that was posed to them, it was really great activity because there is no correct answer because, of course, we know hopefully, well, hopefully maybe we'll find something with perseverance trundling around over there. But um, we know that there's not a great deal of plant life on Mars. So there's no wrong answer. And something like that is a open, uh, a blank canvas for children. So there's no wrong answer. Just design it and illustrate it. If you've learned a few skills on how to put some technical detail into your illustrations, you can create something that is totally plausible. And so long as you can explain why you've put those adaptations and features, then that's a win in my book because they are thinking about the external forces, the internal adaptations. They're illustrating it to their own creative level. And um, it's just a really great beginning to get them thinking about how things would be if you did live on Mars. I remember when I was a really young kid, I must be like nine or 10 years old. Uh, there was a, I don't even know the name of the book at this point, but I do remember the story effectively saying, what would a silica based life form look like? What would a, a some sort of organism, if, they, if you could go into the Jovian atmosphere and it somehow can handle the pressures and everything else, what would it be like? Would it be this sort of uh, balloon shaped thing that can rise up and down like an alga does in, in, in a river system? Uh, that sort of combination of imagination, but tr truly adhering to the actual abiotic factors that exist in one of these worlds really, really does. It really bridges the real with the potentially unreal, or maybe they are real. Who knows with all the number of worlds that are at, behind our solar system. It's really, really cool. I mean, um, love, love that project to be involved in. I mean, so how old uh, do you, do you what, what age of kids do you mainly work with? Uh, mainly, I am working with primary school age um, children, so three, four, five years, three, four, five, and six. But I have um, a regular program even at the local preschool, and they absolutely love it. Those children are just so amazing, even at the age of four, with their little inquiring minds. And I have done high school and adult workshops as well. But the the main part of my um, my working day is in in primary schools. Yeah, one of the things also is the. Um especially when you're getting kids to learn to do a scientific drawing is that you really need to be true to the specimen that's in front of you. Uh, and then there's some rules around it. I mean, even just putting arrowheads on the end of lines when you're trying to point out a thing is somewhat of a no-no <laughs> in some ways <laughs> because it blocks things. So what are the kind of things that kids and, and effectively teachers need to look out for us, especially when they're first coming to grips with scientific drawing that they've got to be aware of uh, irrespective of how good they are at drawing. Well, one of the things that I do impress upon the kids is that um, if they keep a, um, a, a writing journal, like a nature notebook, they can do many, many scribbly observational drawings, which are um, 
really good for their cognitive development, holding the pen, making their observations and doing their drawings, even if they're not a really finished artwork, it's still conveying information. And the next time that they look at that artwork, they are going to remember, oh, I remember that that animal had that feature or there was those particular shapes in that rock. And they, they don't have to be beautiful finished drawings just to make a observation and to take it to the next level. But when they do take it to the next level, um, I show them basically how to break it down and do a very, very detailed illustration. And the, the beauty of that is stopping and looking at the very close details that make up the whole of something. So our brains, we often trick ourselves into feeling like we know everything about everything. We all have blinkers on to a certain extent, especially people who are very focused on their research. For instance, scientists who are um, deep in their research often stop seeing the bigger picture because they really do believe that they already know everything about that. But when you are forced to draw something, you are asked to look at all the little details to make it look realistic. And more often than not, when you just sit quietly, you take it apart in your head, you look at the little hairs, the pores, you will notice so many more things about that object that you're trying to draw. And when you place them into your drawing, it's going to look so much more realistic. One of the good things to do is to draw the object in its entirety, but then break it down into, um, like, for instance, magnified or blown up portions of details. So if you were drawing a leaf, for instance, you might draw a section that you've looked really closely at and then you draw, you scale it up and draw it a little bit. It might have certain vacuoles or hairs on the leaf or veins that you hadn't noticed before. And those kinds of things are often the observations. You ask the bigger questions further down the road, maybe when you're a little bit older, you know, why is it like that? Why did it do that? And those kinds of observations lead to many advances. For instance, in the art of biomimicry in, in humans, we're often looking to nature for the solutions for human problems. And that's what you need to be able to do is look at how and why things are the way they are. True. And it actually reminds me of, I suppose it's keeping with the space theme, but um, cobbler's, cobbler's peg, Biden's Pelosa, farmer's friend, also known as the stuff that sticks to your socks. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. you, you look at it really closely and it's got these little hooks on the, on the end of their seed and it makes sense because by attachment, they get to disperse their seeds. And, yeah, uh, the George Demestral story. Yes, you know that story. That's what's leading towards. It's such a really good example of, I mean, this, this little hooky little thing on the socks suddenly produces, well, incredibly powerful thing uh well velcro and the well, the ability to connect stuff and i know that even looking at um other objects that are found in nature can be applied in engineering i'm thinking of um the uh the, the pads underneath chameleon's feet why yeah, on earth absolutely. can they stick to something and <laughs> it actually goes down to some chemical forces actually but yeah it's very very powerful when you actually really look up close to things Yes, and um, when you're trying to communicate those thoughts and questions, um, the best way to do it is through visuals or artworks. So, I mean, we're all daunted by a massive book that has only got pages and pages of text in it. We, we love those visuals, and this gives the, um, the children the ability to communicate visually. And a lot of kids prefer to kind of communicate through drawings a lot of them um, don't have those other literacy skills and they can really shine in this environment yeah they absolutely can uh, I mean I mean that's 
that's the reality is that if you look at a collaborative team and you want to make stuff happen, there's always someone who can put something down on paper. There's someone who's really good at speaking about things. There's other people who's good at uh, pushing, not pushing people around, letting pe- leading people towards the destination. Let's say it that way. Yes, <laughs> you, you, right. you got the leaders and you got all, all these components are incredibly powerful, but without the ability to put designs down, it's incredibly hard to convey something just with text. And um, yes. No, it's I completely I agree. <laughs> oh, yeah. Very, very, uh, I wish, you know, I wish I had that skill. But then again, you, you could always argue that's the same thing as saying, I wish I could play guitar as well. You got to start somewhere, right? And then you, start, you learn the process and you get better and better at time. Well, absolutely. And that's the first thing I say to the kids when I start with new groups is it's a skill that you can learn like any other thing. And that's my example about learning the guitar. You don't know how to, to do that. And you certainly don't know how to do it well after you've picked it up for only five minutes. Like anything else, you know, it's something that you can work on and practice. And I find it interesting because quite often the teachers in the room are very hesitant to join in the activities um, because they really have well and truly often stepped past that age bracket where children are maybe starting to be a bit scared of having a go. But um, usually they, I, I can kind of coax them into having a go as well. And they also get similarly um, surprised at their, their awesomeness once they know a few tricks. <laughs> well, true. And then I kind of think about when um, you look at um, engineering challenges, eventually they're, or especially design challenges, Eventually, their building blocks and how those uh, blocks articulate together produces a very complex artifact that does a thing. Well, I suppose in some ways, knowing how to do, you know, whether you're dealing with shading techniques or perspective or whatever it is, those those techniques can be learned over time, and then they compound on on top of each other to eventually you can produce something amazing. And yeah, it's really cool. So, right, so if you start somewhere with a blank canvas, like just say there, I don't know, I'm just. I suppose I'm putting you on the spot here, but I don't know, they're, they're 12, 13 years old, really, really, really keen to learn, but haven't really picked up a pencil or, or brush or anyway, and, and they want to really nail it. How long does it sort of take for a child to really start to grasp what to do in such a way that, you know, you know what, they're really, really, really good at this? Um, I don't think it takes that long. Once they um, just are encouraged with a little bit of confidence, I, I would say, like, normally my terms run over a 10-week course in schools and by halfway through that the kids are like running down to show their parents and things the things they have drawn and are really really excelling there's many as I keep coming back to tips and tricks and once they are able to to use those I don't think it takes long at all with a little bit of um, encouragement and desire to do so. Fair enough so um, let's be honest sometimes you can't be everywhere f- for everyone. And um, there's only one Jillian. <laughs> so if someone's on the other side of the world or whatnot, and, and for whatever reason, they can't connect with you or whatever, what would be the first steps that you'd suggest that they should take to be able to help kids really start to put their ideas and interpretations of what hap- what's happening in nature down on paper so people can really understand at a scientific level what's going on? Um, well, my advice to somebody like that would be to... Um get themselves a little sketchbook which they can draw something in every day or every couple of days and as I mentioned before they don't have to all be beautifully finished tonal artworks Um, and do little drawings and practice looking in the garden it's really all about looking or in the playground or down at your local park or the local environment wherever they are and just stopping and looking around because we live in a really fast-paced digital world it's a very mindful grounding thing to do to take five minutes and look closely mostly at something in nature 
And if you start to look around, you'll start to notice little changes. They may be day-to-day -day changes or seasonal changes or even um, something bigger that you can then say, why is that like that? You can then go back through that little notebook. It's like a little bit of a diary of your drawings. And as you progress with your drawing, if you do have a little practice every day, if you add a little bit of shading here and there, it will be no time at all before you'll be ready to doing a, um, a more finalized drawing that you might even consider putting in a frame. Totally, and actually that reminds me of, um, uh, I had a primary teacher uh, get us to have these cardboard frames to, to extend out from our arms, You're holding this picture frame with a hollow space in the middle going, okay, whatever you, whatever's in that frame is what you got to draw. And so you got to choose whether it was gonna be something up close or a landscape that was further far away. But either way, the frame helped you to sort of, sort of focus yourself just a little bit. And then let's be honest, you're holding a piece of cardboard, <laughs> but it, it does make a, a huge difference. Um, and it, so I guess uh, in essence, it doesn't have to be expensive. Oh, no, no, absolutely not. You only need pencils and paper. And um, oh, one thing that I would advise to, to get as a little piece of equipment is um, called a paper blender or a paper stub or a tortillon. It can be called anything like that. They look like pencils. You get them in packs of about five. They're very cheap. You can buy them in any of the cheap kind of shops in the art aisle or at an art supply store. store. And those are the real tricks to um, being able to shade. So there's no graphite in the middle. It's just very tightly round paper that looks like a pencil. And um, you use that to blend the pencil that you've put onto the page and Honestly, it's the secret weapon to make your sketches look fantastic. I had no idea about that weapon. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's criminal that people don't know because one, the first time that anybody uses one of these, they just look up with this look of shock on their face and go, oh my God, that's how you do it. <laughs> it's like watching when you watch home improvement shows and they just do the thing so quickly, so easily. And you just go, oh, I could have done that. So no, actually it takes years of knowing what to do before you can do it so easily. But yeah, yeah. what a great trick. That's awesome. Yeah, no, and it's a very cheap little piece of equipment. And um, I, you can just use your finger to blend the, the pencil or the graphite, but it's, it's not as good as when you use one of those. And um, yeah, they are super cheap, easy to buy. Fair enough. And that's probably why there's a smudge tool on Photoshop. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I guess so. Exactly <laughs> the same thing. Now, look, thank you so much, Julie. Now, there'll be people listening and going, you know what, I need to get in touch. So how would they do that? Um, so I have a website, which um, I believe we'll put up afterwards, but it's just www.imaginenaturalists.com.au. And I also, um, and on that website, you can contact me via my email address or my phone number. And I've also got posts under Imagine Naturalists on both Instagram and Facebook, and I can communicate through those as well. And I often post the children's work as they are doing, as they're doing it up on the um, webs or on Instagram, Instagram especially. Facebook um, is probably not as good for me, but Instagram and my website is a good place to get me. Perfect, definitely. And as usual, we always put those links in the show notes. Now, before you go, I thought I might just ask, what was the best thing about going down to Antarctica? Oh, oh there's no one answer to that question. That was the most awesome experience. Um, I, no, no one answered the whole time. Everything about it, it was fantastic. The Maybe I would have to say the fact that the animals down there, um, they're so unafraid of humans because they haven't learnt to be afraid that when they see you on the ice, they come, so there's the seals and the penguins, they'll come racing across towards you to check you out and um, they just don't have any fear. It was lovely. Oh, that sounds awesome. That That is actually a bucket uh, 
listing for me. I, I believe I, I don't know what, what port I'll leave from. Uh, I mean, maybe South America, but who knows New Zealand? Where did, where did you leave from? Um, I left from Tassie, from the Australian Antarctic Division. Um, but I would love to go to South America to do that jump across as well. That's beautiful over there. Ah, fantastic. Look, thank you so much, Julian, for uh, jumping on this podcast for a little bit. And uh, look, really looking forward to hanging out with you with the Australian Virtualized Store Challenge, which is just around the corner. Yeah, I can't wait. That will be really exciting. Ah, absolutely. Julian, have a fantastic afternoon. Okay, I will do. You too. We hope you've been enjoying the Physics Ed podcast. We love making science make sense. Why don't you book us for a science show or workshop in your school? If you're outside of Australia, you can connect with us via a virtual excursion. See our website for more. What a great way to link scientific theory with imagination. I mean, Gillian is doing an amazingly great job at getting kids to unlock their own potential through, well, creative drawing. It's so fantastic. And I've got to say, it's still better down in scientific theory. Why not challenge your students to create their own ideas, draw them down, or what they think might be living on another world? It does. It links the abiotic and biotic factors that truly exist, you know, better down in true scientific theory, but it links to what could be, what might be, and what a great headspace to be in your classroom. So if you want to find out more, head on over to imaginaturalist.com.au and you can find out what uh, Gillian is getting up to and how to get in touch. So look, thank you again for hanging out on this uh, episode yet again. There are more episodes coming up on the Physics Ed Podcast. Uh, you've been listening to me, Ben Newsom from Physics Education, and this is the Physics Ed Podcast, and I'll catch you another time. You've been listening to another Physics Ed podcast. We're excited about science. Subscribe to us on iTunes to download the next episode as soon as it's released. And don't forget, for hundreds of ideas, free experiments, our new Be Amazing book and more, go to physicseducation.com.au. That's physics spelled F-I-Z-Z-I-C-S. This podcast is part of the Australian Educators Online Network. AEON.net.au